As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. back to the latest edition of the Audible, presented by Trader Joe's. I'm Bruce Feldman, joined as always by Stuart Mandel. Hey, quick thing, we haven't talked about Trader Joe's a ton. The rosemary tri-tip, Stu, you gotta get it, is the best thing I've bought at Trader Joe's. That sounds fantastic. I'm not kidding. It is the best. It is. It, is, it will be a go-to on our shopping list from now on. Okay. I have noted that, and I will be doing that on my next trip to Trader Joe's. We actually have news to talk about. Yeah, breaking news. I don't know if it's breaking news, but it's news that has been broken. So I woke up uh, Saturday morning to, you know, be on Pacific time. Sometimes we are a little late to the news. I woke up Saturday morning to the news that conference realignment is back on. Ladies and gentlemen, UConn going back to the Big East. Now, Now that we're a few days into it, it appears there will not be much, if any, ripple effect from that. Uh, it was obviously done for basketball, UConn, there's no question UConn basketball, this, you know, national powerhouse program has suffered since, since leaving the Big East, but of course, you wanted, you wanted chaos, didn't you? I could have used a little dose of chaos just to liven things up here in the off season, but I mean, I'll tell you what, any little, any little, even a hint of realignment gets people talking again. For the purpose of this podcast, let's focus on UConn football. I just, I can't believe how bad it's gotten. You think about the start of this decade, 2010, UConn played in the Fiesta Bowl. Now, they weren't the world's greatest team ever to make the Fiesta Bowl. I think they were eight and four, but they won the Big East and they played in the Fiesta Bowl and things were going well for them. Then Randy Edsel left for Maryland the morning after the game. Well, here we are, and in 2020, 10 years later, apparently UConn football is going to try to be an independent like UMass that schedules whoever they can cobble together and is basically a glorified FCS program. It's insane that you can that, that can happen in the span of a decade. Yeah, by the way, we, I, you know, this gets lost a little because people talk about them playing in the Fiesta Bowl. It wasn't like that was an 11-2 and two team, by the way. You know, they were an 8-5 team. Well, in many ways, that them making that Fiesta Bowl was one of the uh, one of the events, I would say, right. that, that led to the end of the BCS because it just didn't make any sense. Why was that school... And why was that team in one of the four big bowl games at the time? 
I think the school took like a $2 million bath on unsold tickets. That was an 8-5 and five team. You know how many ranked teams they played? Zero. Uh, I don't believe they zero, themselves zero were ranked. ranked. I think they were unranked playing in the game. Or, or maybe they were ranked 25th. 25th. They, they played zero ranked teams. I mean, everybody talks about the, the LSU-Alabama game as the straw that broke the camel's back, and I'm sure that didn't help things. But, you know, there was a lot of BCS angst already. And then them playing in the Fiesta Bowl, like I said, $2 million in unsold tickets. It was just, you know, it was yet another indictment of that system. And why are we still doing it this way? When you start looking at this, lost by 20 at Michigan, lost by two t- touchdowns to a Temple team program that had gotten booted out and was in the MAC, lost, got shut out 26 to nothing at Louisville. Okay, so yes, they were in the Fiesta Bowl. And then after Edsel went for his dream job at Maryland, they really started a downward spiral. And it's gotten ugly since then. They had the worst defense in the history of major college football last year. So that's correct, by the way. The worst defense yes. in the history of college football. Why is that? One in eleven. Um, when you heard this, did you think, okay, this is I don't want to say the end of UConn football as we know it, but like, do they go independent and just become like a, a UMass version where where that wears blue? Like what what do we make of, of, of how much further they're going to plummet? Well, first of all, this isn't completely out of nowhere. There's been rumors for probably a year that UConn was thinking about going back to the Big East. And I think that we all knew that the American was not going to let them stay as a football-only school. But I always thought when that if that day came that they would drop football down to FCS. And apparently they are steadfast in their opposition to doing that. And... You know, look, I, I remember covering them 15 years ago when they moved up from FCS and they built that stadium. You know, that's a 40,000-seat stadium in in uh, West Hartford. Uh, Dan Orlowski was the quarterback. Like People thought, you know, this is really happening. UConn football is going to become a legit big-time program. And so I guess there's a matter of pride, right? Like, you don't—you'd be admitting defeat if you went back to FCS 15 years later. But what what's a more— appealing just as if you're a fan or if you're a player like what's more appealing being an fcs and playing for a spot in a playoff and and possibly a national championship or what they're going to do now which is cobble together i mean ralph russo wrote about the fact that this has got to start next year 2020 they all of a sudden have eight open dates they have to fill and and there's every other team in the country has already filled their schedule they're gonna have to convince schools to cancel games they already have to come play them they're going to do a lot of body bag games. They're going to have to go play at Clemson and at this school and at that school. And and for what? You know, maybe maybe you can possibly get the six wins and play in whatever bowl has a leftover spot. That just seems like a really depressing existence. It really does. I mean, look, they have terrific basketball history on, in both men's and women's basketball, but it's tough enough. And I just, I mean, I think it's going to be... You know, if I'm if you got Randy Edsel there, it's not like they have much momentum now, especially after last year. I know he was tweeting out some stuff, and you're like, "Whoa, this is this is just a really, really dismal. It portends a dismal future for them." I mean, it's it's different if, if it was like they had a young, energetic coach and they're saying, "Okay, here's somebody that's going to rally around them." It just it just feels like this is gonna this is gonna be a very listless situation that. It doesn't look like there's anything to be excited about. Hey, rip on Randy Edsel all you want. I think he's still an upgrade from the past two hires, which were Bob Diaco, who was a disaster, 
And when Edsel originally left for Maryland, somebody had the bright idea to hire Paul Pasqualoni, who 20 years... Paul Pasqualoni, though, was a... Like, Paul Pasqualoni was a... I think in his prime was a better coach than Randy Edsel was. Oh, absolutely. He had some great teams, but this is 15, 20 years later. That did not go well. So... Uh, I think the highlight of UConn in the last ten years was when Don Brown was the defensive coordinator. They had some, they had, they went from having one of the best defenses in the country to the worst one in the country last year. Here's the one thing though that could work in UConn's favor in trying to make a go of this, and that is they've got a lot of friends at ESPN. That is the home state school. That is, you know, if you know the origins of ESPN, it literally started because somebody wanted to be able to put more UConn athletic events on TV. You know, it goes that far back. So I could see them taking a little bit of pity on them. <laughs> and doing what? Suiting up for them? <laughs> no. going to help. Well, BYU is able to be an independent because ESPN gave them a nice TV deal for all their home games that pays them. BYU, first of all, has a lot more of a pipeline to get players. They have a lot more of a football identity than UConn football does. Oh, BYU is a national, in fact, international brand. It makes yeah, total I, sense for ESPN to want to put BYU's games on TV. I mean, it would make of, no business of, sense to put to do that with UConn, but I'm telling you that they're in Bristol. You know, might maybe do one, you know, do a solid for the home team. Did you sniff some glue before you said that? I mean, about the only way they're going to make a major impact is if they screw up the font and, and like, give <laughs> UConn... Extra I don't think you're them. taking this seriously enough. I'm not saying they would pay them what they're paying BYU, but you know they've got eight. Maybe you know, they, they need more programming for ESPN Plus. You couldn't see them throwing UConn a bone and saying, "Okay, well, put together a schedule and we'll put the games on one of our eight gazillion outlets." Yeah, I, I just don't think that's going to resonate much with recruits who are going to want to play. Where you know you can almost watch any game on on your. Whether it's on ESPN Plus or it's on, you know, some, you know, Facebook Live, I'm not sure that that's going to be something that's going to really ha- – I could be wrong. Maybe I'll prove prophetic and six years from now, Randy Edsel will get the last No, 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 no. I, Randy Edsel will not be long for that place. And, but also, I'm not saying ESPN is going to cause them to get good at football. I'm, I'm just talking about having enough money to pay the bills. What's the other alternative, though? Like, if you're talking about how does UConn become a good football team again, they are already at such a disadvantage in terms of where they're located. Now you don't have any sort of conference affiliation to throw in there. I mean, I'm struggling for answers. It's, it's, it's pretty telling that, you know, there was some initial thought that the MAC or Conference USA would take them, and that died down pretty quickly. There was no interest. That's not going to happen. So... It's they're like a pariah now. It's and again, this is from Fiesta Bowl to pariah in the span of ten years. Okay, other news to get to. The NCA on Wednesday announced changes to the transfer waiver policy. So, and you knew this was coming, right? People are too uncomfortable with Justin Field, Tate Martell, and all these kids who are lawyering up and getting immediate eligibility, and then other kids who wanted to be closer to a sick family member or whatnot, got rejected. So it's it's kind of hard to sum up uh, very quickly. There's a lot of NCAA legalese involved here. But basically, to get that waiver, you're going to have to have super-duper documentation to prove that your grandmother really has some sort of debilitating condition and that you're actually well, part of her care. Yeah, it's not uh, just that they have the condition. 
that you have a role in, in their care, their well-being. That's a different threshold than before. Yep. And also the one that is just astounding to me is that in a case where a guy gets run off the team, which we know which happens is, a lot, which is which is seems to be. And again, this comes back to something we've talked about before, where there's not there's not been much transparency as it comes to what becomes public. But that especially when you hear about what uh, how Miami was very grateful for Ohio State and how they handled their support of the waiver sounds like it was part of the Tate Martell case of, hey, we, you know, probably be better off going someplace else. Yeah. So they're saying that you have to have you basically have to have a letter from the AD of the former school confirming that the player was not going to be allowed to come back onto the team. And what AD is going to admit that his coach ran the guy off the team. So, you know, I think this is clearly meant to address the discomfort that coaches and many administrators have that these things were getting handed out like candy, which they really weren't. You know, the rate hadn't changed that much overall. It's just that there were some high-profile cases. They went from, I think from 2000, the AP had a story, it went from 2016, 17, there were 21 waiver requests. It had basically tripled in two years. Yeah, I think uh, there was a perception that it got even more uh, loosey-goosey this, this offseason, and that hasn't necessarily been the case on the whole. Well, I think, you know but, what that is? Yeah. I think it's because of the portal, and it was always, oh, news, so-and-so, who's probably the fourth-string right guard, is now in the portal. Or it's some kid who may not even be eligible at the school, and he's in the portal. So then all of a sudden, it's like Twitter is paying attention to it. The portal was something, I wouldn't call it sexy, but it was intriguing. So I think that fed into it. And look, who doesn't want to bang the NCA because they look heartless by not approving the waiver of Luke Ford or Virginia Tech's, you know, Brock Hoffman. And those are cases about had sick family members. So I think they became, there was a lot of fodder out there. And I'm not saying what the NCA here has done is I like it. I just think they're, I think they probably created more of a headache for themselves by doing this. Just to be clear, so it's the schools that are responsible for this. The people in Indianapolis are just trying to enforce them, and they end up being the bad guys in this. But there's just but the schools no, are the NCAA. The schools are the NCAA. The schools cannot come to an agreement on this. Some schools think you should be uh, more athlete-friendly and let the kids transfer more freely. Other schools think, you know, a popular proposal lately. I know everybody, all the coaches at the in Phoenix, when we saw them, were all throwing this around. Bob Bowlesby mentioned this recently. They want it to be everybody sits out a year, and if you graduate, you get the year back on the back end of your career. They think that's the perfectly good common sense solution, but I don't think I don't think that would ever get uh, widespread support. I don't think they want to be seen as being more restrictive than they are now. So I don't know where you're at at this, but I just had a column go up on the Athletic where I said, you know, for year for for basically the whole time I'm covering the sport, I've always been very like, well, you can't just give them. You can't just let everybody transfer freely. It would be too chaotic. You know, the free agency coaches would have it would be impossible to manage their roster. So, even though that might be the the sensitive thing to do for the athletes, I just don't think it's practical. Well, I'm done with that. I mean, this is such a stupid system. Case by case waivers have to get your grandmother's medical files. One guy can get rejected, another one approved, and you have no idea why. I say just let them play. One-time one exception for every player, one time in your career, you can transfer a play right away. Okay. I'm not disagreeing. I don't know about the one-time exception part. I don't know if that 
for me changes it or not. Well, you I don't. Don't, I don't think you could have a situation where a guy could transfer four straight years. Why do you make that distinction? I'm not um, disagreeing, but why do you make it? Tell me. I mean, even the one-time thing is probably going to be pretty unmanageable. But if you do it that way, no restrictions, transfer every year if you so please. You could see entire rosters turn over, you know, when we, especially when there's a coaching change. Think about it, there's a coaching change, and everybody can transfer freely, and they don't have to worry about using that up. I mean, you could see half the roster turn over. Yeah, I mean, again, I, I think these fall into the unintended consequences issue. Right. Because you can transfer in other sports without penalty. It's basically the, you know, the heavy revenue sports where it feels like it's a much different uh, threshold. I don't know. It's complicated. You know, I was I was out with some some people who work in sports Tuesday night last night. And one of the subjects came up was name and likeness and where that is and everything. And, you know, I've always gotten stuck on some of that where it's like, oh, I can see how these things could be exploited where people can, you know, boosters can be taken care of players. And even if you you say we're going to pay them, it doesn't stop somebody from cheating because somebody's going to try to pay them more. That's, you know, seems to be human nature as it relates to, especially to, to college sports. And there's ultimately, it's like, I guess it comes back to you cannot please everybody. There are going to be things that look like they're egregious mistakes and, and outcomes that we don't want or we don't think are, are just. And... You know, the more we twist and turn, I think the more the, the more that these things look problematic, just as we're talking about some of these, you know, these, you know, provide how am I going to help, you know, grandpa, grandma Jenny, because she's battling, you know, whatever she's battling. And it's just like, OK, these are, you know, is this the kind of thing that the NCA should be getting in the middle of? I think that the more they tinker with this and the more complicated they make it, it's kind of like, let's just take a step back here. At the end of the day, this is a lot of time and effort and paperwork and lawyer fees to do what exactly? To, to decide whether or not somebody should be able to play college football. What's the reason that you have to set out a year in the first place? It's supposed to be so they can adjust to their new university, you know, focus on academics. But it's not like, it's not like you get to set out the, uh, the 6 a.m. conditioning sessions and the meetings and the practices. You still do all that. All it means is you don't, you know, on those 12 Saturdays, and I am talking specifically about football, you don't get the suit up. So I'm not sure it's really having any impact on academics. So, I mean, I guess I would say you could do it one way or the other. Either do that idea about the playing right away and the one-time transfer, or do the proposal the coaches have where everybody sits out and gets on the back end. Just do one or the other instead of it being this um, huge bureaucratic maze. All right. Let's get to the mailbag. Bruce, it's time for America's favorite podcast segment, and that, of course, is our mailbag. Yes, and we have some great listeners with some really interesting questions. So many interesting questions, Stu, that as we're kind of going through, I'm like, we got to save a couple of these for the next time because we can't get to all of them. Yeah, they're going to need a little bit. Dig into them. They're going to take a little bit more research, but... Again, what, so what email address did people send these amazing questions to? Theaudiblepod at gmail.com. There you go. By the way, we haven't really talked about this, but should we be doing some sort of party or something? I believe we are right around at the five-year anniversary of the Audible. Is that right? I didn't. Uh, I started at Fox in early July of 2014, and I assume we started doing the podcast shortly thereafter. We actually started doing the pod. Well, you, we did. I started doing the podcast or the Audible a little before you arrived. Right. Trivia question: You don't have the first guest of this podcast was. I do. I do. 
But uh, I'll give you a hint. You trashed his hiring viciously this, this offseason. Yes, the first guest ever on the Audible was Les Miles. And it's possible that I was the second or third. You had me on as a guest before I was actually a co-host. I believe that's true. You, Brian Kelly was also the first week. You were somewhere in that batch, though. Shout out to our producer at that time, Teddy Mitrosilas, who is now probably a rich, rich man uh, off in startup <laughs> land, no longer in journalism. Yes, the hardest, one of the hardest working people either one of us has ever worked with. So, Correct. Okay, this is a fun question from John in Virginia. Stuart Bruce, I just got done reading a fun article by Andy Bitter in The Athletic about six what-if questions surrounding the Virginia Tech program. Andy Bitter, by the way, does a fantastic job covering the Hokies. John would like our take from a national perspective on what are the biggest what-ifs in the BCS college football playoff era. And first on his list of what-ifs is what if Frank Beamer had accepted the UNC job in 2000 rather than changing his mind on the way back to Blacksburg. Is that, did that happen? You know, Stu, I got to admit, I'm like you. I did not recall this. Now, neither one of us probably was covering college. We were covering college football, but not probably as closely as this. Or, look, it's been almost 20 years doing some research around. There was a story that I found in the Raleigh News Observer about Frank Beamer had talked about it in his book that had come out a few years back, Let Me Be Frank, My Life at Virginia Tech. And he said in 2000, he nearly left Virginia Tech to accept a job at North Carolina. He had accepted the job, then changed his mind, as he wrote about in the book. That wouldn't have been one of the ones, clearly, you or I would have would have gone there with, I don't think. These other ones are more obvious. What if Nick Saban had never left LSU for the Miami Dolphins? What if Urban Meyer had never retired from Florida before going to Ohio State? What if Cam Newton had never gotten dismissed from Florida? And what if Pete Carroll had never left USC for the Seattle Seahawks? Let's, so let's take his before we get to some other ones that came to mind. I'm going to go by each one of you can tell me where you, you know, if you agree or disagree. The Nick Saban leaving LSU, that thing was cranked up and rolling when he left. I'm guessing that he would have won a couple more national titles if he didn't. You agree? Well, if he had stayed long enough to do so, yes. But Nick Saban at that period in his life, if he hadn't left for the Miami Dolphins, he just would have left for another NFL job the next year or the year after. He clearly wanted to scratch that itch. Urban Meyer at Florida, that thing was leaking a lot of oil at that point. Charlie Strong was the big, crucial assistant who had left. Now, there were other good assistants who were no longer on the staff, Dan Mullen, certainly one of them. But Charlie Strong was the guy who was really, you know, had the pulse of the locker room. And I think when he left, that was when things started to really spiral. And uh, so I, I don't, I'm not saying it would have, if Urban Meyer's coaching it, I don't think you're going to have a mediocre team. But I, I just think that there was already a balance of power shift at, uh, in the SEC to Alabama. I think that, yeah, I think that wouldn't have ended as well for him, much like with the other one on this list. You know, if Pete, Pete Carroll's USC dynasty was start, had its first cracks the season before he left. I think they went 8-5. and five. And then, whether he had been there or not, they were still going to get those NCAA sanctions the next year. So, you know, the, the, the amazing legacy that Pete Carroll left behind at USC might not be that if he had stayed another couple of years. So you're dismissing all of the ones that he said? Well, not dismissing Cam Newton. If Cam Newton never gets dismissed from UF, I mean, I think he probably still goes on to be Cam Newton, no? Yeah. Am I going to do this? Wait yes. a minute. The, I'm just realizing something. The Urban Meyer and Cam Newton ones are linked. You can't have one without the other. So if Cam Newton doesn't get dismissed and succeeds Tim Tebow as Florida's quarterback, 
uh, that program would have gone right back in the correct trajectory. You would think, all right, so I'm going to do this for a second. And I, 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 I retain the right to, to jump off if I don't. So this, the subject of Cam Newton came up on, and I know we haven't brought this subject up before, but I'm going to throw it out there now because it's relevant. The Zach Smith podcast, he referenced Cam Newton and said Dan Mullen really did not want to coach Cam Newton at all. He made it sound like he would have didn't want to coach him as a quarterback. If he wanted to go play tight end, that was fine. Cam Newton had gotten in trouble with the laptop story, and this is all according to a you know a former Florida staffer, Smith. So who knows how that would have played out? Obviously for Auburn, it played out spectacularly well on the field, but that is an interesting little footnote. A, I can't believe you just brought up Zach Smith as like a credible source of of anything. But I know you, you've been listening to that podcast. You can't get enough of it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. But secondly. Look he, was, look, he was there on the staff, I think, as it relates to some of, some of that information. Okay. Well, then, I guess my, but my follow-up question would be, if that's true, then why did Dan Mullen then recruit him to Mississippi State? As we know, the whole genesis of that scandal was that a Mississippi State booster was accused of trying to buy Cam Newton. Good question, Stu. I don't know. I thought about. I actually thought about that too because obviously that was where the con- the biggest controversy in his recruitment came from was the Mississippi State. I think it was John Bond. Yeah. Was the guy involved? So there's a lot of tentacles to that. But let's get back to the what ifs. The what ifs. There was a couple that came to mind. So John's question is a great launching point for a bunch of stuff. I had three that came, or actually four that came to mind off it. The first one is related to what you said I agreed with, with, Pete, with a lot of these, certainly. But the Pete Carroll one, by the time Pete Carroll left, it was Chip Kelly's conference. He had beaten USC three out of the four times that he had, he had played them. If he had stayed in Oregon, what do you think happens? He still had Marcus Mariota. He was, you know, would have had him a couple more years. Oh, I think, I think Oregon would have won the national title. With Chip Kelly as the coach and Marcus Mariota as the quarterback, I think they would have won a national title. I would agree with that. I think that was trending that way. I mean, the three years before he left, they had got finished third, fourth, and second. And again, they were they were loaded with some athletes. And I mean, that his that his last team, the 2012 team, basically crushed everybody they played, and then had the one loss in overtime to Stanford. So they were pretty close even then. And I just and that was with Mariota in his first year starter. So I think as his career progressed. Certainly, they had a lot of talent come through that program during that time. I mean, Halfridge came awfully close to doing it like when they lost to Ohio State. So, yeah, yeah, I think that it's crazy. I mean, maybe Oregon would have become something akin to what Clemson is now, like a program that kind of breaks through and, and joins the clearly joins the elite despite not having as much history. A couple other what-ifs. This one came close to happening. Rich Rod almost took Alabama, and Greg Schiano almost took Michigan. Yeah, I mean— I have to think, based on what happened with Rich Rod at Michigan, that Rich Rod at Alabama would have been an unmitigated disaster. And that means that Alabama dynasty never comes to be unless unless they still get Saban, you know, three years later. Yeah. I, I don't know how much different it would have been Shiano versus Rich Rod. You know, he wouldn't have been as much culture shock as Rich Rod's system was there at Michigan. I mean, Rich Rod was in a hole before he ever even got there because of the remember how bad the divorce was with West Virginia and they sued oh my him God, yeah. for the buyout. Assuming the Shiano move would have been a more um, 
you know, wouldn't have been as controversial. Like even, you know, just from that point on, he would have been off to a better start. Uh, I don't think that the change in system would have been as drastic. So uh, who knows how he would have done, but I would have, I don't think it would have been quite as, I don't think it would have been the disaster that, uh, that Rich Rods was. I have two other what ifs that I think are fun to kick around. The first one is a little bit of an older one, but it's in this window. And that's what if Butch Davis doesn't leave for the NFL. No doubt. I would, there's no doubt he's winning the next national title because Larry Coker did it. Mm-hmm. But the way he recruited and evaluated was different than what followed him at Miami. And that once his guys kind of left the program, it started to sputter. Yeah, I would think that 01, 02 wouldn't have been much different. I mean, Coker won the national title and played in the national title game the year after. It's what happened after that where the program fell apart. If Butch Davis had stayed... How many more years do they keep it going? How many more uh, national titles do they play for? You know, I think that would that would the answer that would be for however long Butch stayed. Now, much like yeah. I said with uh, Saban, you know, he may have still gone to the NFL the next year or the year after. But uh, I think that that dynasty definitely would have lasted longer the longer Butch stayed. Can I throw one out there? Can I finish mine and then you come come back? Yeah, I don't even know how you came up with this many this quickly. Because I never got to the other questions. I focused on this one. The other one is, and this was a fun one, it would have happened a year ago. What if John Curry, who is the old Tennessee AD, does not pursue Mike Gundy, which was totally a futile pursuit, because there's no way Mike Gundy was leaving his home in Stillwater to go take that job in the SEC. Instead, doesn't waste time by the rest of the week and goes right out to the West Coast and recruits Mike Leach. Mike Leach is going to take that job. Mm-hmm. Not only would Mike Leach have taken that job, Tennessee, and this was a you know a decision that Jeremy Pruitt made. They could have had Gardner Minshew. Minshew was interested in going there. Instead, they took Keller Christ as the grad transfer. Minshew ends up eventually going to Wazoo and sets all sorts of records and leads them to their first eleven win season. I don't think he would have had the level of success with Leach in his first year at Tennessee, but they I I would bet money they would have been a lot better than they were last year. What do you think of Mike Leach at Tennessee? I think that's a fascinating one. And if, if Jeremy Pruitt doesn't end up, you know, doing great things there and just becomes the next Tennessee coach that gets fired after four years, that, that could also end up being one of the biggest what-ifs, much like the ones we're talking about, because that was a, a completely missed opportunity. Now, who knows how Leach would do, but we think I think we both think he would have done pretty well, and it might have finally turned that program around. So... I, I think that's a really fun one. All right, what do you got for me on, on your side? Well, one, I, get, I got one that's similar to the other ones we've been talking about, and that is uh, what if Les Miles had taken the Michigan job in 07? If you remember, you know, morning of the SEC championship game, Kirk Herbstreit goes on the air, says, done deal, Les Miles is going to Michigan. Turns was it out, like John Tenuta was going to go with him as his defensive yeah. coordinator? There was, like a, there was a couple of pieces to it, yeah. Turns out behind the scenes, LSU basically said, if, and they were still in contention for the national title, so he really wasn't in a position to leave. They said, well, you better make up. You better either commit to staying or you're fired. And so he stayed. If he had gotten the Michigan job, I think that would have gone a lot, 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 lot better than Rich Rod's uh, time there did. Um, and then the, the ripple effect, you know. I mean, then Rich Rod stays at West Virginia, presumably. West Virginia, I mean, I just think that, that press conference that morning just set off like a, a cascade of events. West Virginia... That night loses and misses out on the national championship. You know, LSU wins the national title that year, plays for another one four years later. 
I can't remember who would have been a logical successor at Les Miles if he had left. So it would have affected LSU, it would have affected Michigan, probably West Virginia, a bunch of different schools, right? Mm-hmm. And then I'll, I'll, go, I'll go down the well of one of my favorite topics, right? Realignment. What if Nebraska doesn't go to the Big Ten? Does that end everything right there? Because the whole three, four years of craziness that followed really started with that, with you know the Big Ten announcing they were going to pursue an expansion candidate. Nebraska becomes that candidate, causes tension with Texas. The Big 12 almost implodes. If, that, if Nebraska says thanks but no thanks, did the conferences look exactly the same today as they did then? Yeah, I wouldn't think they would. No, certainly not. But yeah, that I mean, there's so many layers to that one too. I don't, yeah, I mean, I don't you really could you could do this. you could do some you could do a whole bunch of what ifs along the way of that. Obviously, what if? I mean, I'll give you another one. What if the Big East football schools, chiefly Pitt, uh, USF, I believe, hadn't turned down what was a perfectly good contract from ESPN that they opted to not take it. And then the league fell apart shortly thereafter. You know, if they signed that TV deal, I think the Big East might, as a football conference, might still be in place today. Yeah, that's crazy. We should probably move on. We've spent about 15 minutes on this one question. Okay. Well, here's, I'm going to tee you up on this one. It's a shorter question, but it's also very open-ended and fun. From Lucas in Oregon. Hey, Stu and Bruce. Who or what would you put in the one-hit wonder wing of the College Football Hall of Fame? Thank you, Lucas. I think you're referencing Stu's reference to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame last week. Yep. Interpret as you please. Okay, Stu? Well, I would think I mean, one name immediately comes to mind, and that's Gene Chizik, national title coach Gene Chizik, who, has, and who did nothing before that or after that. In the same spirit, does that bring Larry Coker into this? Yes. Although he did play for the national title in the next year. He won 30, year. Uh, well, he didn't win 34 in a row, but he won, or did he win 34 in a row? I'm trying to remember how many Butch won first on the on the beginning of that streak after they lost to Washington. Now, this doesn't have to just be coaches. I'm trying to think of some players who had one amazing season and didn't. I have one. Okay. When I saw his name, uh, you know, and where the question came from, it got me thinking Oregon. And this also tied into the what if. Dennis Dixon had one spectacular year at Oregon, 2007. Yep. It's, I think it's Kelly's is the offensive coordinator. 20 touchdowns, four picks, complete 68% of his passes. What if his knee doesn't blow out? Mm-hmm. Um, he probably wins a Heisman. Everybody I, says that, but don't you think, I mean, there was just so much. Tim Tebow was such a media sensation by then. You really think Dennis Dixon from Oregon, from the Pacific Northwest, would have beaten out SEC hero Tim Tebow was the SEC you know back then the SEC wasn't quite the brand in 2007 right as you were thinking of it now I'm not saying you're wrong but I think that that lens is a little different I mean I'm willing to say he would have been in New York and maybe even the runner-up but I just Tim Tebow was you know he, his trajectory was already heading in the direction that it was at that point I mean you might be right but again I mean that Oregon team I, I mean, know. that Oregon team might have made the national title game. That was the year that nobody could just stay number one or two. So with him at quarterback, I think probably don't lose to Arizona. And maybe I mean, they when, they, when they lost on the road to Arizona, they were coming off back-to-back top ten wins over USC and ASU. And they had got to number two in the country. And then his knee goes. And the following week they play at UCLA, they get shut out. They lose three in a row. So I don't know. To me, that, that was kind of the one-hit wonder feel that came to mind is again i was a little influenced because i saw the name 
where the question came from that got me thinking of that. I'll give you one. Honey Badger. Honey Badger was beyond a one-hit wonder, though. In college, he had that one amazing season and got Heisman finalist, right? Yeah, but he had more than that because... But then he was kicked off the next year. Yeah, but the year before... So I was I did one of those where I spent the week with the team and I spent the week with uh, with West Virginia when they were going to play. It was really my first big story for CBS and they were going to play LSU and Honey Badger. They just were scouting. They just had so much like outrageous stuff from him the year before of him making one big play after another. So I wouldn't call. I mean, I think it's unfair to call him a one hit wonder because he was he was pretty spectacular when he played. Now it was two seasons but so this is what i'm saying you're you're gonna call him a one-hit wonder but in his freshman year he had five forced fumbles uh i just thought of the ultimate one-hit one the guy who would if there's a wing in the hall of fame he would have a, a bronze statue sitting in front of it ready Give it to me. maurice claret that's a good one that is a really good one one yeah. phenomenal freshman season leads his team to the national title never plays again this is not what you want to hear. I was actually at Maurice Clark's first game. Ohio State pounded Cliff Kingsbury. Just I was at uh, uh, not was that early. one, but an early season one where they were chanting. It was maybe the third game that they played Washington. They State. were chanting at that in the first yeah. game. Maurice, Maurice, he was really good. He was even good on special teams and stuff. For the many people listening now, I mean, we're still going so far back. So for the many people listening now who were not a college football fan in 2002, and we want to try to describe in a, in a really quickly the sensation of Maurice Claret. Imagine packing all this into three or four months. True freshman starter at running back who, from the very first game, is clearly one of, if not the best running back in the country. Has Ohio State heading toward an undefeated season. Then your your magazine, right? ESPN Magazine, yes, puts him on the cover. Very controversial cover. This is my colleague, Gene Wojciechowski, did a story there, and then there was more stuff that came with it. And in the interview... I'm trying to remember exactly, but I mean, he basically said he wishes he could turn pro after his freshman year. Very candid comments, which probably in that era, which was 2002, I guess, it's almost 20 years ago. I'm not saying they wouldn't have been they wouldn't have been uh, very polarizing now because everything's polarizing now. My recollection is that public opinion turned on him after that, whereas today you would have had every every college football columnist, blogger, TV pundit. Being like, good for him. Like, yeah, absolutely, he should be allowed to turn pro after his freshman year. But at the time, again, he made him kind of villainous. Then fast forward to the national title game. We're out there in Arizona. You were there, right? I was. I got a little note on this one, so tell your story. And then Perhaps I the only time I've like... ever covered one of these games where somebody made huge news the week of the game. At media day, he, he, it comes out that he, a friend of his died, and he wanted to go home for the funeral, and he claimed that Ohio State wouldn't pay for it or wouldn't let him go or wouldn't pay for it one or the other and it became a huge huge headline the week of the game and then of course the sad post story is he uh, got kicked off the team the next year he was gonna be suspended for a year he got kicked off the team he i mean ended up in prison eventually he's actually yeah 30 because it's too it's there were so many layers to this one thing i remembered about that when you said the arizona thing i don't know if you're part of this I remember going out to Ohio State practice with two other reporters. Yeah, I was probably one of them. And there was a big scrum around the AD at that point, Andy Geiger. 
mm-hmm. and everybody was just like wedged around him. So it was one of those where it's almost like a big, ugly game of Twister. Playing <laughs> game of Twister with a bunch of sloppy sports writers. And at one point, and I know who it was because it was a guy I used to work with in Miami who ended up being as a hockey writer. His he had a cell phone ringer that I don't want to say that may have played like Sweet Home Alabama or something like of that era. And because nobody could move, he couldn't get to his phone without probably groping another writer. <laughs> and so we're all wedged around. It was just kind of comical at that point. I don't even remember what Andy Geiger said. I just remember that scene of of just like you basically got your 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 face into some small somebody's back because you're trying to just get your tape recorder in the middle of this and everything like that. That was my my recollection of Arizona and Maurice Claret. My recollection is that, you know, I'm still fairly young and new to the business and very eager and and excited. And I turned to an older reporter who I had a lot of respect for and said, oh, you know, we're going to go to practice, right? We got to go track this down. And he goes, ugh, I wish they could just send a pool reporter. This just, this just killed my tea time. <laughs> You'll have to tell me who that was off the pot. Or you can tell us all. I will not throw him under the bus. But yes, that was a, really? Um, that, was a, that was one of those moments when you're young and, and impressionable. You go, really? That's, that's where I'm going to end up one day? And, and that's where I am. If, if something uncontroversial happened to the National Championship game now, I'd be really ticked. That I had Send to actually Max work for a living. Fortuna, that's terrible, Stu. I'm just kidding. Okay. okay, next question. Mark in Pittsburgh. Hi, Stu and Bruce. I was surprised that Michigan did not come up in your discussion of first-time playoff teams. Both Athlon and Phil Steele have them in their playoff. They have a great coach and a veteran QB. I'm a Penn State fan, but if I'm honest, Penn State is still young, and Ohio State could be vulnerable with a new coach and an unproven quarterback. I think Michigan has a clearer path than LSU's treacherous route through the SEC, and a Texas team that the analytics don't love. What are your thoughts? I'm surprised that they didn't come up because I know you you are on the bandwagon. I am. You know, I think I've focused in, a, you know, as we said before, more on, I think, Texas. And I, if I'm being perfectly honest, this is probably maybe one of the things you probably get sucked into in the long off season, Because I think Michigan, even though they lost a lot, Michigan, both teams lost a lot on defense. I'm saying Michigan versus Texas. Michigan lost better players, but I think te- Michigan probably has more guys coming back. What I do think is, if you ask me, and it's not as simple as this, but in the offseason it feels very simplistic, I have a lot more confidence in Sam Ellinger than I do in Shea Patterson. Yep, agree with that. I think Sam Ellinger is a Heisman caliber, possibly quarterback. Shea Patterson can be a good Big Ten quarterback, but I don't think he can be a superstar. Uh, look, I'll, I'll be honest. I'm I feel very burned by Michigan uh, after what happened at the end of the last season, and um, I will probably be the last person to jump back on that bandwagon. I think they can have a very good team, top four team. It'll take them getting all the way up to the end and beating Ohio State, I think, before I believe that that's possible. And and look, maybe I'll look like an idiot. I've already I think said this on here once. I see a lot of parallels between them and Virginia basketball, where after the Losing to a 16 seed, everybody's like, never again. Not That's the last time I ever picked them to do anything. And, of course, they went on to win the national championship. But that's kind of where I'm at right now. Okay. I, you know what? I, maybe I wasn't paying attention when you said that before. I don't remember the Virginia analogy. Maybe I said it on, on a radio podcast show. Or a radio yeah, show. Man, you're cheating on You say this so many – say it. You talk for when you talk about this stuff for a living, you sometimes forget where you said it. But, uh, but there you go. It's out there now. I concur with you also on the part where – there's a recency bias or the definition of it, but two clunkers down the stretch, 
and whereas Texas finished by by pretty taking it to Georgia. And again, I do, I don't know, maybe I have too much faith in Sam Ellinger, but I do think he is a transformational kind of player where he can lead guys, and that's where I'm putting my chips on. But I, I'm, as you said earlier, and as you know, as Mark is, I am a believer in Michigan. I think they're going to be a top ten team. I just don't know if they're going to. I, I push Texas in first, and I'm going to stick to it at this point. Lastly, we have another contribution from Riley Rutland. We have another contribution to the all-decade quarterback discussion. I know I'm beating a dead horse, but I think A.J. McCarron at least deserved mention. I know most of the guys you picked had the stats and or high draft picks, but all A.J. did was win two rings and was a kick six slash overtime away from playing for a third. All he did was win and do everything the team needed of him. Thoughts? You know, statistically, after I saw this, I was like, let me take a look and see, because I don't feel like... He was pretty darn good his last season. 77 touchdowns, 15 picks, and he didn't make a lot of mistakes, completed all 67% of his passes. I think the thing that comes back here, and this was the feeling of, I don't want to say he was a game manager, because the numbers are very impressive, but I feel like there's a lot of, well, he had a great supporting cast, kind of a, a modern-day Ken Dorsey a little bit, like where he was a good leader and he was surrounded by some exceptional talent and he won a lot of games. A.J. McCarron could never go to the College Football Hall of Fame the way it's set up, right, because he was never an All-American, I don't think. Uh, well, he was the Heisman finalist the, his last season. i got to think somebody named him for an All-American team. But this wasn't the Hall of Fame discussion. This was when, This goes back to the question about which current players could play themselves on to the all-decade team. And then and we talked about Tua, and then last week somebody asked us about Trevor Lawrence. And we, end, and we ended up saying who our top three were, right? Johnny Manziel, yes. uh, Mariota, etc. And he's saying should McCarron at least... I'd say he could be in that conversation. I think he definitely gets not enough he credit. He gets overlooked, yeah. He gets overlooked. Because he did get that game manager label, but if you remember the game against uh, Notre Dame, he had a, the national title game against Notre Dame. He had, a, I think, he threw four touchdowns that night. And then his last season, yeah, they didn't play for the national title, but he had a great season. But I know, you know, what you said. I think there's some truth to it. Yeah, I think we would agree, right, that Clemson doesn't win that first national title without Deshaun Watson. Florida State doesn't win the national title without Jameis Winston. But Alabama was so much at that point about its defense and its running backs and. Is A.J. McCarron really the only quarterback that could have won those national titles? I think we would say no. Right. And I, again, I think when you would, you mentioned Baker Mayfield, he was a put that program on his back in a different way. I mean, Cam Newton, there's no comparison to me as well. You know, Mariota, those guys carried those programs. A.J. McCarron was a terrific player. I think it's statistically, I think he's a very underrated player. But I just think he would probably be pretty far down the list of going into this. By the way, to correct myself earlier, he was named by somebody in 2013 as an All-American. This may come as a shock to some people who, who have the same like game manager recollection of A.J. McCarron. But 2012, when, the year where they, did, where they beat Notre Dame, A.J. McCarron led the country in passer rating. He had... 67% completions, 30 touchdowns, and just three interceptions. So he finished number one in the country in passer rating. And let me just read to you this all-star list of people that finished right behind him. That is a sarcastic comment. Number two, Aaron Murray. Number three, David Fales from San Jose State. 
I like Davis Hill. Number four, J.W. Walsh from Oklahoma State. Okay. Coach's number kiss. number five, Taj Boyd. I think we we're good with that. Yeah. And but this this one is gonna blow people's minds. Number six in the country in passer rating, seventy one percent completions, forty two touchdowns, six interceptions, forty two hundred passing yards. Those are insane stats. Put up by one Geno Smith. Yeah, Geno Smith, man, he had he had a great system he was in, and he had really dynamic receivers around him. And then right after that, two two bona fide stars, Marcus Mariota and Teddy Bridgewater. But yes, AJ McCarron led the country in passer rating. You know what? Two things. So first, getting back to the 2013 All-American team, he has a chance to get in the Hall of Fame because that was an AFCA that made him the All-American quarterback. You know who who was who was not the All-American quarterback that year? was the guy who won the Heisman, that was redshirt freshman Jameis Winston, 40 touchdowns, 10 INTs that year. They didn't name Jameis Winston, and they named A.J. McCarron instead? They did, yeah. I can't, uh, I can't get on board with that. Yeah, Jameis, Jameis led that team to the national title. Plus, um, I assume the so, 2012 All-American quarterback was not one of the nine, eight quarterbacks I just mentioned, but was John, probably Johnny Manziel. Yeah, I would think so. Yeah. I mean, talk about like a put everything on your back kind of guy but you know one of the things he just said as a guy we didn't mention at least i don't think we mentioned and he gets overlooked you mentioned and you know appropriately last week lamar jackson you know who was a great college quarterback who we didn't mention who was in this era who was just you referenced was teddy bridgewater right i would be more inclined to put teddy bridgewater on there than aj mccarron hmm. and he didn't have a great freshman true freshman year but by the time he left there he was fantastic he was, but I don't think he was ever a Heisman finalist, and he certainly wasn't uh, playing for national championships. So he had a great career, but I don't know that he's in the same ballpark as Baker Mayfield or Marcus Mariota. That Louisville team, you know, I think they were 23-2, and 23-3 and three maybe his last two years there. The, again, I go back to if a quarterback put the program on his back, and he certainly elevated that program in, in a lot of ways. Before we go, can I do a quick shout-out? Uh, I got one, too. Go ahead. Okay. Uh, I want to give a shout-out to a very, very loyal listener, Megan O'Brien, who's a TV reporter in for the New England Patriots and a uh, proud Northwestern grad who I've gotten to know. And a former athlete at Northwestern. Correct. She reads every state of the program on The Athletic. She listens to every episode of The Audible. And I'm bringing this up because she tweeted a picture of this. She's like, here's the latest book I'm reading. And it was Rammer Jammer Yellow Hammer. So... I can guess where she got that book suggestion. I actually met, it's funny you said that, I met Megan at the Combine, and she would tell stories about, I want to say she was either, maybe both, a cross-country athlete or a soccer player at Northwestern, and covered the, the football program, and Fitz would give her a hard time jokingly about, like, are you late or anything, you know, like, she would go from practice to covering his practices, so. Megan is a uh, marathon runner who ran... I believe the New York City Marathon with Darren Ravel and lived to tell about it. Okay. Uh, I'm going to do my shout-out. Shout uh, my shout-out is actually to Bob Lee, who is a former longtime colleague of mine. As we're taping this, he announced his retirement from ESPN after 40 years. You'll see a lot. You probably have already seen a lot of people praising Bob for what he did there and the impact. And, and what I'd like to say about is he was a big reason why a lot of folks, including myself, not only wanted to work at ESPN, but why it was such a great place to learn at your early stages. To me, that was more formal in my education than anything I did in school. Just a little window into it. I don't want to go too long on it. But when I started ESPN, there were two computers in the whole complex. 
Now, there are basis terminals, but in terms of just like what we know as a computer, there were two, and they were in the space that I worked in. And so Bob would get done with the 6 or 6.30 p.m. sports center, whatever it was, and he would go in there like I would be done at work, and he would basically sit on there, and he would either read about international soccer or you know talk to people about it in Europe, which at that time, which was the mid-'90s, I don't, I'd never heard anybody doing it. And he was a big advocate in what we were doing on what became ESPN.com at this time was ESPN Net on Prodigy. And his show Outside the Lines was as good a thing of any uh, in terms of sports journalism that anybody does in our industry. And he's the biggest reason why. So shout out to Bob. If you, you know, he's had a great run and he impacted a lot of folks, certainly myself included. I mean, Bob Lee is a legend. He had a career that the rest of us can only dream of. But right now, the only question I want to ask you is, how is that possible that in the mid-90s there are only two computers in all of ESPN? And what did you say? They were basis? No, no. So the other com- the other were terminals. I wouldn't call them like computers as we know it. And so what they were were like kind of newsroom. I guess they were computers. They weren't like computers like what we think of a computer as, though. Like a but, terminal in a li- that you would go up to in a library to do research. Yeah, like it yes. has the information internally of what you'd get from news items, how stories and tape was logged, if you wanted to message somebody. So it was much different than, than then. But it was just a very, very you know, different world back then and, and just a window into that. So I started at ESPN in, in the summer of 1994, ESPN.com, or what became of it, launched in the Final Four in Seattle the next spring uh, in 95. And what I remembered about that was, you know, obviously we were based in Connecticut, and our partner company, which was Paul Allen Company, was based in Seattle. And so, you know, we had a lot of people in that office, and it really felt like they were about six months ahead of grasping technology compared to what we were on the East Coast. You know, we didn't even know, like, you know, we'd have somebody, they call it the prisoner exchange, where you'd have a colleague from the Starwave, the Paul Allen company, come back, and one of our people would go out there for a week, and, you know, the 24-year-old would show it, hey, here, if you do Command-C, you can cut and paste this stuff. You know, we didn't have emails. It was it was just, that was what that era was like, you know, I guess it's 25 years ago now, so it was very, very different world, but Bob was... Bob was like probably the first quote unquote grown up you know, on the TV side who really embraced what that became. And, and, uh, it was, you know, it's just such a different, different world back then. Good for him. I got to tell you though, between the Maurice Claret stuff and this, people think, must think we are such dinosaurs. Well, we are pretty old still. There's <laughs> no, let's not, let's not. Yeah, some more than others on this podcast. Uh huh. Okay. All right. I wonder what P I wonder how old people think you are. Uh, I'm pretty old. I mean, I'm, I'm pretty old. I mean, I would be curious what the, the the median age range of this podcast listenership is. I would be very curious about that too. Uh, we once I don't know. It was probably two years ago at this point. We did a survey to that effect. We'll probably need to do that again soon. But in the meantime, we're gonna play a fun little game. Email the audiblepod at gmail.com with your guess of Bruce's age and my age. Do not use Google. You just have to listen to this thing and open your email, okay? Honor system. And whoever is the first one to get them both right will get a shout-out on the air in the next episode, which will be in two weeks because next week is 4th of July and 
it is the one week of the year we do not do a pod. And so have a happy holiday, and we'll see you next time. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to The Audible on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us a five-star review while you're at it. It helps get the word out. Thanks to Trader Joe's for being our presenting sponsor. Our producer is Nick Fink. Our theme song is Dangerous by Kevin and the Octaves. You can download their music on iTunes and Spotify. Follow me, Stu, at SL Mandel on Twitter and Bruce at Bruce Feldman CFB. And subscribe to The Athletic if you haven't done so already. You can try it for free, seven-day free trial at theathletic.com slash free trial. So come on, get over